We talked uh, a bit last week about honor, respect, responsibility, service in the family of God. The church is God's family. It's his household. Uh, these are aspects of any household. Any uh, typical household should have family respect, that we treat one another with respect. There should be responsibility that is equally uh, given, especially as our children grow um, older and take on responsibility. There should be a place where we're learning to serve one another. That's aspects of any household, and certainly that should be true of the household of God. Um, and so last week, we looked at some of those aspects in regards to particular people, but also to, to sort of large uh, groups of people. Older men are to be given the respect of a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as uh, sisters. We looked at even the responsibility that churches have and even families have toward caring for widows. Uh, so we've looked at different groups of, of, of people the last uh, week, and we talked about honor. And I want to revisit the topic of honor because it is a theme that continues on through the chapter uh, here. Now, that word honor, timao, is value. You value somebody, you honor them, or to treat them graciously. That's certainly something that should be in any home, that we're gracious with one another. But it also means to support. It encompasses the idea of even meeting financial needs. And that word honor, tamao, is translated as price later on in Scripture when it's referring to Judas and the 30 pieces of silver was given to, to, to the value of him who was priced. That word tamao is used there because it has to do with a sum or a value, but a value given monetarily. We get our English word honorarium from that. It, honorarium is money given to someone to, to honor them. We, we honor uh, pastors who come and fill the pulpit for us. Uh, every time you have a guest pastor here, Steve Vickery was here last, we had Brad Hain, uh, we, we give them an honorarium because, as you'll see later, um, they're worthy of that because they labor in the Word. Back in uh, verse 3 of chapter 5, we saw this word honor. Look back at it again. It says, honor widows who are really widows. And there he had in mind the financial support. Yes, they should get respect, but he was really thinking about the financial support for widows because they're left all alone. That's a widow who is really a widow. It's one who is left all alone, but he also said one who is a believer and who demonstrates her dependence upon and devoted service to God. That's a widow who's really a widow. And as we move on to our passage today, the section that follows, it continues to deal with the subject of, of, of honor. And it's honor to two particular groups of people, and they are those that we submit to in the church and those that we submit to in the world. You could say to elders or church leaders, and you could say to masters or our, our superiors or bosses or supervisors or whatever you have uh, in the world. Honor should be given to those two groups. And so we're going to look at aspects of honor concerning those groups today, titled it concerning uh, Honor Concerning Leaders. And the passage is beginning in verse 17, and we're going to read all the way down to chapter 6, verse 2. So look back at verse 17. It says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. There's that word honor again. Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it uh, treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden." Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren 
but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word today. God, we thank you so much for your word to us. We do pray that you would be with us as we study this uh, section, which um, Lord is, is full of so many very important truths and uh, principles. We pray that you would, Lord, be with me as I speak. Lord, may my words be your words. I pray that you would open up all of our hearts to what you want us to hear today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at this first group here, honor concerning elders. This is the first group he's going to deal with, honor concerning elders. In verse 17, again, let's look at it. He says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Now, now this is the first time in Paul's letter to Timothy that he's actually used this word elder. We've so much talked about elders. We probably all assume we've been talking about elders, but actually he's not actually used the word elders so far. That word is presbyteros. Um, but Paul has used elders interchangeably with another word. The other word was overseers. That was episkopos. And we saw that word rendered as bishop back in chapter three, where it says a man, if he desires the position of a bishop, an episkopos, he desires a good work. And if you remember, we went and looked at a passage from Paul where he uses those words interchangeably. And I want to remind you of it here in Acts chapter 20. It was verse 17. He said, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church. And then down in verse 28, the elders arrive, and he's speaking to them. And it says, therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he calls those elders overseers. And he says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So there in that one little passage, you have three words being used of one group of Men, elders, presbyteros, you have overseers, episkopos, but also he uses the verb is shepherd. It is, their, their job is to shepherd or poimino um, the people or to pastor them. And so my point is just to tell you that elders and bishops and overseers, pastors, they all speak of the same position. Now, look at this again in our passage, continuing on with the subject of respect or, or honor within the family of God, he's talking about church leaders, elders. Church leaders are to be rendered a particular honor as well. So look at it here. All church leaders, as you look at this, by the way, all of them are worthy of honor because first of all, we looked at the honor given to older men and younger women and older women. I mean, honor should just be a present thing, but we want to look at how to honor them, how to honor them. Here he says, there are some elders who are worthy of double honor, did you see it there in verse 17? Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. What does it mean about when it says double honor? Some would say this is double the pay. Uh, some elders would get double the pay over what elders, other elders are getting paid. And our, our elders here were probably saying, well, I'm not getting paid at all. So, but, but, um, but that's not what Paul is talking about here at all. The phrase is twofold honor. In other words, honor, which is shown in two ways. And the two ways are really given to us here. The first is respect, and the second is remuneration, which is a payment or an honorarium. So some elders deserve the respect that all elders are due, but some of them should be paid as well. That's what he's talking about. So Paul is singling some of them out for this double honor. And there are two qualifications for elders worthy of double honor. The first is this. It says, let the elders who rule well. Elders who rule well. Now, elders do rule in a church. That is the, what is clearly said here. The word for rule is proistemi, and it means to set or to stand or to preside uh, over. But the setting over or presiding over has to do with oversight and care, doesn't it? That is the job of an elder. They have oversight of the church. They have care for the church. And that is a tremendous privilege, of course, but it is also a tremendous responsibility. It is a huge responsibility for elders to take on this position of, of ruling over the church. This is not um, a, a, a authority of, of, of iron. This is not what he's talking about here. This is caring, oversight, responsibility. In Hebrews chapter 13, 
verses 7 and 17, the author is reminding the church of the rule of elders. He says, remember those who rule over you, who've spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then down in verse 17, he says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So he is reminding the church that they are in this position, but, and you, you should be submissive to them, but could you, could you do that with, in a manner that gives them joy and not grief? Because it's a, it's a big responsibility. It's a privilege, but a big responsibility. And it can be for many an elder, and you could say pastor, a grief. Why do so many pastors leave the pulpit? Why do so many uh, quit and walk away? Because it has been a grief. They have people who just don't care or, or put them on too high of a pedestal, who, who, who expect maybe too much of them. They're to be treated in such a way that instead they enjoy serving, that it is a, a joy. That's what he's talking about here. Why? Why should you treat your elders that way? Because they're watching out for your souls, he says. Isn't it amazing that God had the foresight, the love, the care, the ability to, to come up with this idea? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create these things called churches, and I'm going to appoint leaders in them, and they're going to care for souls. They're going to watch out for people. They're going to shepherd people. It's an amazing thing, the church, isn't it? On Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and, and empowered the apostles, I mean, did anyone foresee what would take place after that? That's an incredible thing. We should be thankful for the church. Because if you think about it, if we didn't have the church, we'd all sort of be just figuring this out on our own, just in your living room, right? So I'm supposed to worship God. I'm not really sure how to do that. I'm supposed to read something. I don't know really what to read. Think about it. We would be so lost. I wouldn't be here today if I didn't have a church family. And godly men who I, I looked toward and followed. Even here, he says, whose faith followed, isn't he? You, you have people he's placed before you. You can follow them. They're trying to show you the way. What an amazing, amazing thing. But Paul says here, for some of these men, they, have a, um, they should be given double honor. They should be given that double honor because they dispatch their duty well. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Or in other words, when they do it excellently, when they do it beautifully, when they discharge their duty with excellence, he says, they should be counted worthy of that special honor. Some churches think that they're just doing the elder or the pastor a favor. Well, let's just give them a little gift. I, I heard of a pastor who was blessed because um, some people got together and they just decided to fill his fridge. They brought over eggs and milk and cereals and stuff. He thought, oh, this is amazing. And then he saw that they deducted the cost of those things from his paycheck. Incredible. Like, oh, we're going to give you these things, but then we'll just take that money back. Counted worthy here is axiao, and it means to judge worthy or deem <coughs> deserving. In other words, double honor is not a gift that you give. He says they're deserving of it. You need to see what they do. So what this brings up is a question, doesn't it? How do we know when an elder is ruling well? How do we know? How do you know if your pastor is ruling well? Is he doing the job that um, he, he's supposed to be, be doing? I mean, think about Ephesus and what's been happening here. They had their problems with elders, didn't they? That's why a lot of stuff is in here in this letter about elders. In fact, Paul probably dealt with two of them who shouldn't have been elders early on in the book, Hymenius and Alexander. He said he, he kicked them out of the church because they were ruling. No one knew what to do. How do we get rid of these guys? And some of them didn't even care. They thought, no, they're ruling well. How do we know one who rules well? Well, hopefully we don't have too short of a memory, but just back in chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, we took two weeks to look at the qualities of a good minister of Jesus Christ. Paul was listing out, Here's, here, is a, here is one who serves the Lord well. These are the qualities you want to look for. I won't have these on the screen for you again, but I'm just going to quickly run through the qualities for you just to remind you. Here's the things we looked at. A good minister warns his people of error. A good minister carefully follows the truth. He rejects ungodly teaching. He disciplines himself toward godliness. 
He is willing to labor and suffer. He teaches with authority. He is an example to believers. He bases his entire ministry on God's word. He fulfills his calling. He is diligently committed to his work, and he progresses in spiritual growth. Those were the qualities that we looked at, and we find those in verses 6 through 16. That's an elder who rules well. But the second qualification is given here. It's elders who labor in the word and doctrine. So they must be ruling well, but also ones who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, labor, he speaks of the elder as, as laboring. The labor of an elder, just that alone, is worthy of respect. That's what he says. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he reiterates that. He says in verses 12 to 13, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So obviously he's talking about the same people, same people that are set over, but also who are laboring. And to esteem them very highly in love, here it is again, for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. You're to esteem them for their work. They're laboring, they're working hard. Um, so they deserve special recognition and respect. But some labor in the word and doctrine. The word is logos. It literally means speech. So this would be the proclamation, the, the proclaiming of God's word, the exhortation of God's word, but also doctrine, which is the teaching, didaskalia, the teaching or instruction of God's word. Paul says double honor is especially for those who labor in the word and doctrine. In fact, especially is this word. It's malasta, malasta. It's chiefly or most of all or above all, meaning that is the primary duty of that elder. They're laboring in word and doctrine. Some might teach frequently, some might teach periodically, but some have been given the burden, the primary burden, the chief burden of preaching and teaching. I say burden like it's like, but it is, it's a responsibility. I remember when Steve was talking to me when he first approached me about taking over the church. So this is a long time ago now. Um, and he was trying to get across the weekly burden of preparing the word because I was teaching Resolved, or am I teaching kids ministry, right? But I didn't have the, necessarily the weekly thing. He says, I mean, you just got to think about it. And I think, what did he use? He used the word you guys use here. It's a slog. Is that the word you guys use? Slog. He goes, it's a slog. And I went, oh, not a slog. <laughs> and I was like, slog, what is a slog? I don't know what a slog is. But I, I, I kind of got the, the hint of what he was saying. Like, I mean, it's just, you know what? I looked at the calendar. Sunday comes every week. It's, it's always there. And there's never a week I go, well, maybe, this, oh no, it's there again. <laughs> I don't mean to say that it is a burden, that I, but you know what I mean? There's a responsibility. The burden of responsibility, God has placed people to like, listen, this, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to teach them. He says, those people are worthy of double honor. But remember, Paul has both things in mind, respect and remuneration. And so that's why there are positions that are deserving of that um, uh, pay. That's why we pay pastors when they come. I'm mindful of that. I've been asked to go places. My wife and I have gone to far places and given a whole weekend to something. And you think, well, you know, it'd be nice if at least like our fuel was covered. And sometimes it's not even that. And you kind of go, oh man, that's really a lot on us. I think about people like Steve coming with his whole family. Last time he was here, that was his third service that he had done, three that day. And they're leaving late with the family. They're getting food on the way. They've paid for the fuel, right? You've got to think about those things. We as an elder board collectively got together and said, what is going to be the remuneration we give to people to fill the pulpit? And I said, it needs to be good. You need to take all those things and wash that out. On top of that, what do they walk away with? Because we want them to know they're worthy. They're worthy of it. You should not, never, never skimp on that. And we don't, I want you to know, we don't do that with pastors who fill the pulpit. Bob Claycamp came here in, this, in a while ago. Remember that? Bob Claycamp. We made sure that he received um, a payment for that. He doesn't expect it. No one ever comes in here and says, hey, uh, let's take care of the, uh, you know. No one ever does that. No one ever does that. We just give that to them because that's our desire. Now look at verse um, 18. We know that he's talking about payment because 18 is the one that really gives it away. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul is saying you need to support those who support you, 
And he backs that point up by quoting both the Old Testament and the New Testament. First, he quotes the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy 25.4. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, Paul has mentioned this verse in relation to paying pastors in another place. It was 1 Corinthians 9. I'm going to actually have you turn there, if you will. Keep your finger here because we'll come back to our passage. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're turning there, some of you might remember, we went through 1 Corinthians as a church. We taught through the whole thing. And I remember when I came to this passage, I had uh, several different titles for the message ready to go. The first one was Six Reasons to Pay Your Pastor. And then I thought, oh, that one might not go over well. So then I, I tried to dumb that down and say, well, maybe supporting the servants of God. That sounded better. But then I really liked the whole thing with the muzzle and the ox. So my third sermon title was Don't Muzzle Your Ox. But then I thought, well, then they're gonna, I'm calling myself an ox. So in the end, I went with the title The Privilege of the Pastor, which for Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 is what he's saying. I have the privilege of being paid, but I'm not going to take it because he didn't want it to hinder the gospel. But what he gives is six reasons why you should. Six reasons why you should pay the pastor. And one of the reasons was the reason he's given here. It's in God's law. He says it's in God's law. You can't refute it. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4. I want you to see it. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Now, I love this. He quotes Deuteronomy there. He says, this is in the law of Moses. And then when he finishes saying it, he says, now, did God put that in there because he's concerned about oxen? Now, what's he really referring to here? Well, it was an Egyptian practice that the Israelites took over to sort of have oxen tread the grain. They would this be this flat stone that would be tied behind it. It would just sort of go through the fields, and that would sort of take out the, uh, the grain for them. And basically, it would be treading the grain and all the little, um, um, the, 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 what is the part, the, the, the worthless parts would come off and then you'd have the grain there. And so the ox would do that. And the principle was that, well, the oxen should earn his living out of his labor. That's the idea. But notice the illustration. He said, it's not about oxen. That's why he says, is it oxen God is concerned about here? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God doesn't care about animals. We certainly read that in scripture. He provides food for the ravens. He, he gives birds of the air their food and he feeds the beasts of the fields. But but listen, he says this, it's, it's not like there's a bunch of oxen gathered around the scripture saying, look, I knew it, it says you shall not muzzle an ox, here it is. The original passage in Deuteronomy, he's saying, was that really about oxen? Is that really what he was trying to get across? He says, no, we know that there's no other mentions of animals there, so it's not about that, it's about social and economic relationships. What he's saying is that it wasn't about oxen at all, it was about people. In fact, that's what Paul says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians. Look what he says. Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, that is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be, should be partaker of his hope. So there it is. So the practice of not muzzling an ox while it worked was a metaphor. It was a metaphor used to teach humans that, well, they should be paid for their work. That's all he's saying. Both the plowman and the threshers, they should work in the hope of receiving reward for their labor. So here's what he's saying back in our passage. So if, if God required that animals who labored to provide food for you humans and me, they were to be fed by that same food, well, then how much more would he want faithful pastors who provide spiritual food for his church, how much more would he want them to be provided for? Another reason that Paul gave in that 1 Corinthians passage for paying uh, pastors was not only God's law commands it, but it was also this, Jesus commanded it. Now, what is Paul referring to there? Well, in verse 14, he brings that up, still in 1 Corinthians, he says, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So there Paul is saying, no, Jesus himself said that. And it's not immediately obvious in that passage, but he is referring to Luke 10, 7. If you go back to our passage, in 1 Timothy. You will see it there because it's here that he quotes it. In verse 18, first he quotes the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And then he quotes the New Testament, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So there he is quoting Luke uh, chapter uh, 10. Now, I think it's significant as you look at this that Paul says, Scripture says this. 
Scripture says this because he is referring to Old Testament. Yeah, we know that scripture, but he's also referring to the words of Jesus written by Luke. Luke was a travel companion to Paul. And Paul is saying what Luke wrote about what Jesus said is scripture. Isn't that interesting? Scripture says this. In fact, he's quoting from Luke 10. And um, if you turn there really briefly, it's a Let's review the whole thing in context there. Luke chapter 10 is when Jesus is sending out the 70 uh, disciples, and they're going to go out into all the villages, and um, they're going to serve him. They're going as his uh, servants. It says this in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 2, Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that's what he's doing. He's sending out laborers. And he tells them this, verse 3, Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter first, say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. So there it is. Jesus says the laborer is worthy of his wages. If you go into the house and they're feeding you, they're eating, giving you food, and, and you stay there because you're worthy of the payment they're giving you. And so that's all Paul's point is here. An animal was entitled to eat of the grain that it, it worked so hard to thresh. A servant, a servant of the Lord, was worthy of payment as well. So Paul says Moses and Jesus say that churches are to provide remuneration or payment for those who labor to feed you spiritually. That is his point. And he says labor there, and that's specific to, to get us to understand that. It means to work to the point of exhaustion. It is a, a harsh word there. So the work here of ruling well and preaching and teaching is, is vigorous, is what he's saying. It's laborious, or your, your word, it's a slog, <laughs> and it deserves double honor. So how do we honor elders? It's through respect. It's through remuneration. Now, because elders are worthy to receive such honor, they may become uh, easy targets from others. Because they're in positions of leadership, they, be- they can become targets. And so Paul next gives advice to Timothy and to the church on how to protect them. This is how to honor them, but they also need a protection. Look at verse 19. Do not receive an accusation uh, against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Now, there are many motivations people may have for attacking a, a church elder or a pastor, uh, many, many pastors have been accused of different things, and, and certainly we see sometimes those things come to, to light. Uh, there were true accusations, and we see many pastors and elders fall from their positions of authority. But here he says you've got to be careful about this because people also may attack them with false motivations. And there are many motivations. They may, it may come from resentment. They just resent their, their calling. It may come from a rebellious attitude. They just re- rebel against their authority. It may come from jealousy. It may come from rejection. They reject what they're, they're teaching. There could be all kinds of motivations. And so false accusations against an elder, they're a very real, real danger. That's what he's saying here. So Paul instructs Timothy on how to deal with them. First, he says this, reject unsupported accusations. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. Don't even receive it. If there's no support to that accusation, if there's only one person bringing it up, he says you're to ignore it. You're not even to listen to it. They're, they're not to even entertain that idea unless they can be supported. Now, this doesn't place an elder beyond uh, successful accusation, but it's beyond illegitimate ones. Does that make sense? You have to be careful, he says, to weed these things out. They are never, ever, ever to be at the mercy of false accusers. So Paul is is putting this protection in there for elders. But then he also says to receive supported accusations. Reject unsupported ones, receive supported accusations. From where? From two or three witnesses. Two or three. So that was an Old Testament procedure for separating the valid excuses from the false ones. You can investigate that. The accusations may yet prove to be false, but it must at least be investigated. He says, this is when you listen to it. And there are things, many things you have to consider. Who are the ones that are accusing them? Are they reliable? Are they trustworthy? Are they bringing up a sin issue or is it something else? Remember, Jesus had accusers. They were colluding together to come up with a testimony against him. They couldn't get the testimonies to agree. 
There was no real accusation there. They just wanted him dead. And there's this a harder and deeper subject that we have time to dig into. This is just, a, I would just say, a, an, an overall sort of um, uh, instructions by Timothy, to say it that way. There is protection that is offered to elders, but, but there's only so much you can do. I was in a church. I was a youth pastor for four years. Pastor Chris, you guys all know him now, called me into the office, and he said, so I need you to know that the youth pastor just stepped down. And I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment. And he said that to me because he was a good friend of mine. I worked with him for four years. And I was just shocked saying, well, he's stepping down. He goes, all right, second thing I need you to think about is this, is that I need you to be the new youth pastor, and I need an answer by the end of today. Now, that's how Chris does things. You guys know Chris. Like, no time to think. I'm calling my wife going, um, <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on here. Um, but I had to do that. I stepped into his shoes, and I became the youth pastor. It came to light what had happened. There wasn't a sin issue. There was maybe uh, foolishness on his part. There was maybe um, a lack of just being safeguarding and being careful. He was alone with a girl. Um, they weren't doing anything inappropriate. He was just alone with him, so there were no other witnesses. He said something foolish. I wouldn't say sinful, but something foolish, something he probably shouldn't have said. And she took it back to the parents, and it blew up, just became a huge thing. And so you have no two or three witnesses. You have one against one. And on the one hand, you go, well, you know, we just, you know, just, just don't even entertain that. But Chris couldn't do that. He had to listen to the whole thing. You had families getting involved and big accusations. And then um, and it came to light that they just didn't like him. And they demanded him stepping down. And out of protection for his own family, he said, you know what? I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to step, step down. So this is not as an easy of a thing as it appears uh, to be. You do have to investigate these and think, and think about what would be the wisest. But the general rule is here to protect um, the, those elders because they're, they're easy targets. They're going to be. Um, <laughs> to attack someone, though, in a position of authority, it is a very serious matter. It's not something to be taken lightly. Why? Well, Psalm 105, verse 15 says, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. I know we're talking about an Old Testament passage there, but these are people that God has placed in positions that he desires them to be in. And he is just giving us a sobering warning. You have to be very careful. And I do think about King Saul. I think about when he was hunting David, and David and his men were hiding in a cave, and, and providentially, providentially, God led Saul to go into that very cave where David and his men were hiding to relieve himself. And what did David do? Snuck up behind him, cut off a piece of his cloak. You remember that? And so once Saul left, David felt terrible about what he'd done. He could have killed Saul, but all he did was cut off his cloak, and he felt horrible. In 1 Samuel 24, verses 5 to 6, this is what he said. Now, it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe just because he cut his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. He was basically saying, you know what? God put him in that position. Who am I to do something different? And you might remember later on when an Amalekite came to him announcing that he had killed Saul, thinking that he was going to get a reward for David because I killed David's enemy. I mean, David was blown away. He says, how, how could you do that? Did you not even, weren't you afraid to put your hand against the Lord's anointed? And what did David do to that Amalekite? Had him executed, didn't he? An elder, likewise, is due to be protected from false accusations, but not given immunity. If the accusations prove to be true, Paul gives instructions on how to rebuke them. And in verse 20, it says this, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. So those who are faithfully serving are to be honored and protected, but those who are proved to be sinning, and it says are sinning, so actively sinning, are to be removed and publicly rebuked. And that seems harsh. You read that, and it's just like, wow, that is, that is a steep thing. But you know, James does say that don't, don't strive to be a teacher because teachers, they're going to be judged more strictly. And that is certainly true. You might look at this and go, well, then why publicly? Why are the other elders or maybe prospective elders, ones that were considering that? 
and into the hearts of the congregation. I mean, Matthew 18 really follows a very similar line, doesn't it? If your brother sins against you, you're to, to go to him. If he doesn't respond, you take two or three. You go to, go to him again, and if he doesn't respond, it says take it to the church. You're supposed to take it to the church so that there will be a fear that will bring him back to repentance. Fear, along with love, that's the proper motive for avoiding sin and obeying God. And I think far too many uh, pastors who have gotten into sin, sin that had became so public, are either not publicly rebuked, they just sort of silently slip away for a bit, or they're quickly reinstalled. And you have to be very, very careful with that because these are leaders of God's church. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness of the fear of God. That is to the church. We're to cleanse ourselves from all of these, all these things. And so if an elder is in sin, they're to be leading the way in this. And so to say, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to take this to the church, that is not an easy thing to do. That takes courage. I think we have to be very careful. And many of the sins of pastors, unfortunately, they're of a, a sexual nature and and Proverbs tells us that the sexual sin is a reproach what will be, will be never wiped away. And so meaning he's disqualified from ministry according to the qualifications of chapter 3, which he must be above reproach. So Paul is charging Timothy here about a very important thing, and he charges him in verse 21 to maintain these principles. Verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus, and, uh, Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. What Paul is saying is, listen, this is, this is a command coming to you before God, before Christ, before the angels in heaven. In other words, for all in heaven are concerned about the purity of the church. It's the purity of his household. It's his household. And so sin must be dealt with in the household of God, but especially when it involves sinning elders. He says, observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. In other words, no one gets preferential treatment. It doesn't matter if they're popular. It doesn't matter if they're well-known. They must be dealt with the same way. So a way to avoid getting the wrong elders in leadership <laughs> is to be very careful in your selection of them. And that's what he gives us next, how to select them. Look at verse 22. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. The best way to prevent unqualified elders from serving in the ministry is to not lay hands on anyone hastily. To lay hands upon them simply meant to, in this context, that was to confirm their giftedness. That was to confirm um, their acceptance into public ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul mentioned this very thing about Timothy himself. Look at verse 14. Just go back to chapter 4. Look at verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. You have a gift, remember? And, and, and the elders all confirm that gift. Don't neglect it. Use it. That was um, confirmation of his selection to ministry. But if that's done hastily, then it leaves uh, the church liable to share in other people's sins. He says if you do that, then you're sharing in their sins because you're bringing that into church. So in exercising proper caution, in the matter of choosing pastors, he says, if you do that, then Timothy, he says, you're going to keep yourself pure. You will keep yourself pure. Now, verse 23 we come to now, I think Paul might be a little ADHD. As he's writing this, as he's writing this, he's, he's, he's speaking to Timothy. He says, and this will keep yourself pure. And the pure thing kind of kicks something off in his mind. Because Timothy, Timothy had frequent stomach ailments. And the water in those days was not very pure, was it? And so he is encouraging Timothy to drink some wine with it. Look at verse 23. So this is actually a parenthetical side note to Timothy. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities, okay? So just out of nowhere, he plugs this in. Now, speaking of pure, let me just tell you this, Timothy. Now, Timothy obviously had committed himself to, to total abstinence. He wasn't drinking any wine. Why? because he desired to be a model of spiritual virtue. That was his choice. But like I said, water in the ancient world, not always so good. Not often, it was often impure. So 
Because of his stomach ailments, Paul says, listen, you can have a little wine. It'll probably do you, uh, do you good. All right, but after that aside, Paul here, beginning of verse 24, gives four principles for, um, that concern the selection process, okay? To go through a selection process, I've read to you what we do with elders. There's a selection process, and this is very similar here. It says in verse 24, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. So some men's sins, they're clearly evident, meaning meaning you don't even have to look very far. You can just see the example of their lives and say, well, they're not elder quality. They're, they're clearly living sinful lives. Some of them, um, they're not even trying to hide that. So they're obviously unfit to serve as elders. But those of some men follow later. He says some men's sins are not evident beforehand. They take a little bit investigation. They come to light during what? During the church's assessment process. There must be careful proce- a careful process of investigating. And we looked back at chapter 3 about the qualifications of an overseer. Those are all the things we, we look at. Are they blameless? Are they a husband of own wife? Are they tempered? Are they sober-minded? Are they not given to wine? Are they not violent? Are they gentle? Are they husband of own wife? Are they managing their house well? All those things are the things that you're looking at. And you look at those things and say, oh, you know, some of these things you do see once you start to go through the process. So he says, listen, don't lay hands on people hastily. Go through this process. Some of the sins are obvious. They're evident. But some take a little bit more investigation. They come to light later. But likewise, verse 25, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So some good works are obvious. There's sometimes that, that, that the, there's an obvious uh, from the quality of the men and their character that they're qualified to serve. You don't have to do a lot of digging. There's not a long discussion about their qualifications. That's unnecessary. The good works are evident. But then there are those that are, that are otherwise, and they cannot be hidden, meaning good deeds of some, maybe they're not as easily seen or readily apparent, but they come to light during the examination process. They'll be found qualified to serve as elders. So there'll be clearly evident sins, and good works, which will easily disqualify or qualify them. Other, need, other ones need more investigation. So that's what he's talking about there. And that really brings to a close the honor about uh, elders and then the lovely part that he gives us about protecting those in leadership. We'll just take a couple minutes to finish up chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, because it's also about honor. But this is honor concerning masters or those also above us, but perhaps outside the church, in the world. And first he speaks about unbelieving masters. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. So bond servants there, that can be translated slave. And it speaks of a person who is in submission to another. It carries it with it no negative connotation, because it can be a noble designation. That word was used um, uh, and describes our Lord serving serving his his Father. It's used in the New Testament to describe a believer's submission to his Lord. It's uh, used uh, to non-Christians as well, submitting to them and to other believers. So it doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. We are bondservants of Christ. We're slaves of Christ. And that's a good thing, because if I'm not a slave of Christ, guess what I'm a slave of? sin. But he came to free us from the bondage of sin, that we might be slaves to him, slaves to righteousness. So in the, in the New Testament here, it describes that in a, in a beautiful way. So how do we act then as, as believers toward unbelieving masters? What kind of bosses do you have in your workplace? Are some of them hard to obey and submit to? Are some of them rude to you and rough with you and discriminate against you? I bet you all have your own stories with the kind of people you've had to submit to in the world. Well, we're told here, first of all, that we're to honor them. He says you must honor them, count them worthy, count their own masters worthy of all honor. Again, deem them worthy. They might not be worthy of it in the eyes of most people, and maybe even in your own eyes, but he says you must count them worthy of that. Romans 13, 1 and verse 7 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs, 
Customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. How do we honor them? Well, firstly, we, as is mentioned here, we are to submit to them. We are to submit to them. That is an important thing. And obviously, we submit to our, our um, leaders. We submit to those in authority of us as long as they're not asking us to do something that's contrary to Scripture. And then we obviously honor God and not men. And, and uh, we honor them, but we don't, we don't obey them. So how we honor them, we submit to them. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. Boy, that's a hard one, isn't it? For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. I remember when I first came across that passage, it blew my mind. What, what does it matter if you, um, you deserve punishment and you're beaten and you take that patiently? Well, you deserved it. But what about when you don't deserve it? What about when you're treated wrongfully and you take it patiently? He says that's commendable before God. So even our, our rude bosses, our cruel ones, he says you should submit to them. You should honor them. Why? So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. So that the name of God and his, doctrine, his word won't be blasphemed. Our attitudes, our behavior towards our bosses at work will affect how people perceive God and his word. Don't you think you might turn ahead or two if you reacted completely contrary to the way people thought you would react when your boss treated you unfairly? If you were patient and you endured it, no doubt you would. No doubt they would. Why aren't you, why aren't you cussing them out behind here? Why aren't you talking about them at the water cooler? We should actually take the high road there and still render them honor because we're, we're thinking about who we're truly honoring, aren't we? It's commendable to God. Think about who we're truly serving. Christians are to be a city that's set on a hill, aren't we? But also, some of us have believing masters. Here in chapter 6, verse 2, he says, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, <laughs> but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Sometimes, because we serve believing masters, we might think differently about them. Oh, they're family. I can kind of treat them however I want, you know, they'll get over it. <laughs> he says, actually, actually, they're, they're brethren. You should serve them. And that's what he says, serve them. We should serve one another. Service must be a major aspect of the church. We should be willing to serve one another. And I want to close with just taking to you to uh, two passages really quickly. One is Ephesians chapter 6, and the other is Colossians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 6 Colossians chapter 3, we'll just end with some principles that come to us from these passages. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Bond servants, we just saw that word, didn't we? Bond servants or slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now let me take you to one more. It's in Colossians chapter 3, and then we'll put these two principles together. Colossians 3, 22 to 25. Just a short right-hand turn. Colossians 3, verse 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Very similar. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. From these passages, we can summarize several principles of conduct for believers on the job. One, we're to serve our employers obediently. No matter what, we serve them obediently. We're to serve them completely. So not just, uh, 
when they're looking, right? Completely. Respectfully, they are due the honor. We're to serve them eagerly. He said, in sincerity of heart. That means our heart really does want to eagerly do it. We not begrudgingly, oh, I got to go do this, sincerely. Excellently, because he says to do it as to Christ. Wouldn't you want to do everything for Christ to the best of your ability? He says, when you serve your masters that on earth, you do it to Christ. Do it with excellence. Diligently, not with eye service. Humbly, not as men pleasers. Spiritually, doing the will of God from the heart. And one more, we've got to think eschatologically. Think of the future. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You know what? We're not doing things ultimately for reward here on earth, are we? We're serving Christ. We're expecting reward and honor from Him. And he ends this by saying, teach and exhort these things. If there's one thing our world needs more of, I think it's real, true respect, real honor. How do we really do that? The church should be the one leading the way, right? How do we do that? Let's, let's begin it here. Let's make sure we're doing it well in the church so that we can be doing that well in the world for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Again, we thank you for these instructive words from Paul, who lays out these principles so well for us to follow, to understand, makes them clear for us. Lord, um, we thank you for the household of God, where we can, with grace, learn these things together to honor and respect one another, Lord. I pray that we would strive to do that diligently and well here so that we can do that diligently and well in the world because the world is watching. The world wants to know what we really think about God, what we really think about Christ, what we really think about his word. And Lord, I pray that you'd help the attitudes of our hearts because many times our hearts just aren't in it. We may go through the motions outwardly, but we just can't uh, convince our hearts to truly do these things with real respect or real honor. And that's just because, Lord, we, we need um, to die to self. We need heart change. We need allow your Holy Spirit to do that. So, Lord, would you do that for us? If anyone here today struggling with that, truly want, wanting to release, uh, Lord, any negativity toward anyone, Lord, that you would do that by the power of your Spirit. We just can't do it in our own power, in our own flesh. We need supernatural power. So we pray that you'd help us to do that, Lord, to remember that ultimately we're serving Christ in all that we do. We want to honor you. We love you. We praise you for all that you have done and all that you continue to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.